Uh, we move now to the, to the Bible reading. So if you have your Bible or your app on your phone open, we go to Luke uh, chapter 9, verses 1 to 9. And our second reading, uh, if you want to mark that, will be from Matthew 6, 33 and 34. Uh, so Luke chapter 9 reads like this. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out old demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, and others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John, who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him, and he tried to see him, sorry. And our second reading is Matthew uh, chapter 6, 33, 34. And Jesus says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Well, I hope you don't mind, uh, but I kind of enjoyed preaching sitting down last week, and I figured you're sitting down listening to this. Uh, we can both sit down together uh, as we open God's Word. I do invite you to grab a Bible, uh, turn to Luke chapter 9. That's where we will be uh, this morning. And uh, you recall that we have seen Jesus do some very incredible miracles. And right now, in chapter 9, the scene will suddenly shift as Jesus' power and authority is transferred or conveyed to his disciples, to the Twelve. Uh, and it reminded me of a time when I was a child, and I used to love Christmas time, not just because of presents, but, but where I'm from, uh, our, on our street, everyone put up Christmas lights. And it was my dad's job uh, to sort of Get, make sure the house was decorated and ready for Christmas. And I remember as a little kid, sort of five, six, seven, I would go out and I'd watch him as he'd get on a ladder and climb on the roof and, and he'd be standing, leaning over, nailing, uh, nailing the Christmas lights into place. And I remember thinking, wow, how does he do that? I don't know how to do that. And then I remember as I got older, uh, my responsibilities increased. And then there was one year when I was about, I think probably 14 or 15, when uh, mom didn't come out and say, okay, Jonathan, you got to come to bed. But she just said, you know what, you stay out and you keep helping your dad. And I remember that transition to go from watching him work to actually participating in the work. And that's really what this text is all about. It's about 
moving from the disciples being watchers of what Jesus is doing to being workers alongside Jesus, continuing his kingdom mission. And that's really the key question for us today. As you sit in your home, you might feel like you're, you're in a very passive state in life. But as you consider your life as a whole, do you consider yourself more to be a passive observer of God's kingdom or a participant in God's kingdom? There's a big difference. Uh, up to this point, we haven't heard much from the disciples, but from this point on, the disciples are going to be given responsibilities. And this is really a shift between being a watcher and being a worker. That's what I want you to consider as we go through this message today. But I'm going to pray right now and ask God to bless our time in his word. Would you join me? Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you invite us into the work. Thank you, God, for the way that you speak to us and empower us through your Holy Spirit. Father, I ask now again that your spirit would speak to our hearts through the scriptures, that we would understand all you have for us in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for... Uh, sustaining us in these times. May you multiply our meager offerings into something that is bountiful and abundant and lasting in your kingdom. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I said, I would like you to grab your Bible. Uh, if you haven't already, turn to Luke chapter 9. And as we go through Luke chapter 9, verses 1 to 9, we're really going to ask three questions. What's Jesus doing here? The next question is, what are the disciples or the apostles doing? And the third question is, what's the effect of all this? So what's Jesus doing in this text? What are the apostles doing in this text? And what's really the effect of all this? And by the end, I'm trusting that you're going to see that God continues that kingdom work that Jesus began through us today. And this is something to really marvel and wonder about. But let's jump in. Uh, verses 1 Two, three. Jesus begins. Uh, Luke records that when Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And then he told them, he gave them some instructions. We see Jesus doing three things in these few verses He calls, He sends, and He instructs. He's going to call, he's going to send, and he's going to instruct. Now, within the context of Luke's gospel here, this is really important because this isn't people who've decided that they've been inspired by what Jesus is doing and they would like to replicate that. These are people that Jesus has handpicked. If you recall way back, I believe it's in chapter 5 in Luke's gospel, Luke records that Jesus called 12 men to join him and he appointed them to be apostles, which were sort of like envoys or emissaries who would continue bringing his kingdom message. And when Jesus called them, he picked them, he, they're named and they're known. Uh, but the significance of the number 12 is important because we see that Jesus in selecting these people, he is actually constituting a new leadership for the people of Israel. The nation Israel is named after Jacob, which, who had his name changed. And Jacob had 12 sons, and these 12 sons would become the 12 tribes of Israel, and they would represent the people of God. Well, Jesus, in calling these 12 disciples and appointing them to be apostles, he is reconstituting the leadership of God's people. He's regathering. He's stepping into the promises that God had made, that he would appoint new shepherds, new leaders over his people. 
And so he's called them together, but he calls them together for a purpose, and that is to send them out. And this is really remarkable. Because calling them together, he gives them power and authority. Power and authority. Someone has said that authority is the right to do something and power is the ability to do something. Living in these times of COVID restrictions, we all understand what it's like to not have the authority to do certain things. And when you have freedoms and they're suddenly limited, you can feel uh, quite depressed, discouraged, downcast. Um, so much of people's lives is spent chasing authority to find the right to be able to do things. Maybe you're trying to get into a position at work that might give you the authority to make more decisions. Maybe you're trying to cut, cut the apron strings from your parents a little bit and, and just get a bit of space to be independent or for yourself. Maybe you're in school and you're a kid and, and you just can't wait to get to that next marker. Maybe it's year six or, or year 12 when you get to be the big person on campus and you get to be the one who walks around with that swag and that authority. But authority is this, this right to do things. And what's incredible is that we've seen over the last three weeks that Jesus has unparalleled authority. There is nothing that he cannot do. He has authority even over the things that every human being must submit to. The natural forces of nature, the power of evil, and, and death and disease. Jesus has authority that is unparalleled, and here we see that he is sharing this authority with these 12 disciples. It's incredible. But it's not just the right to do things, he gives them power as well. We live in a time that's very obsessed with power and who is able to do things. And we're always trying to quantify who has the power and what is that power doing in relationships. But there's something I need you to notice about what's going on here with Jesus. Because the disciples are going to receive a power, but it's not in a way that we often think we receive power. See, most of us think we have to earn power. Or power is bestowed upon us because of some certain distinction, justly or unjustly, perhaps by our social class or by the color of our skin or by our gender. You see, power, we're used to either working for it or it being automatically given based on some feature distinctive or particular to us. But here, the power that comes from Jesus is power that's given by grace. You see, there's nothing about these apostles, nothing about these disciples that makes them worthy of the power that they're being given. The power to participate in the work that God is doing through Jesus Christ, the bringing of his kingdom, is a power that you can't buy. It's a power that you can't earn. It doesn't matter how many quiet times you have in a row, how many days you haven't missed from your Bible reading plan. It doesn't matter how passionate or excited you feel. You cannot go into God's presence and grab that power for yourself. It has to be given. And one of the wonders here is that God would share this power and authority. Now, there's another way we're used to be receiving power and authority, and that, that's the way of someone who's really disinterested, and they say, you know what, I can't be bothered doing that task. I, I, I really don't, uh, it's just too much, I'm too busy, I got too much else going on, can you take care of that for me? That's not what's happening here. It's not as if God has become suddenly disinterested in the work of the kingdom and what Jesus is doing. Jesus isn't saying, you know, I'm a little bit tired, guys. I would like you to just sort of take up the work so that I can rest. God is not giving 
us. He's not sharing the power with his disciples and the authority with his disciples, and then by extension sharing the ministry with us. He's not doing this because he's now disinterested. No, it's the sharing that a father, that a carer, that a mentor, someone who is passionate and thrilled and enthralled and caught up in the work wants to share with someone else. It's like being invited, invited into a space where you get to learn from the master craftsman, where you get to participate in this great, grand picture that God is painting, this tapestry that he is weaving. Jesus, he summons them together, he chooses them, and by grace he bestows his power and authority over them, onto them. And with this, he sends them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. In other words, to do the very same thing Jesus has been doing. It's not as if they get a different task. And I told you at the outset the story of my father inviting me to, to help him with the lights. And, and as much as I enjoyed participating, the one thing I didn't like is that I got all the jobs that I didn't think were very interesting. I got the jobs like making sure the light bulbs were screwed in properly. I got the jobs of untangling all the cords. <laughs> and there were some reasons for that. I, I wasn't allowed to climb up on the roof and bend over the edge. Uh, we would have had problems with that. Uh, but nevertheless, I looked at that and I thought, oh, why did I get this job? Jesus is giving them the exact same ministry that he had. Jesus is sharing with these disciples, with these 12, the ministry of proclaiming the kingdom and healing. And we're told also that with that healing comes liberating people from, disease, from not only disease, but also from demonic influence. And then finally, Jesus gives them instructions. This is important because it tells us that the work that is being done in the ministry of the gospel and the kingdom of God is a work that Jesus supervises. It's a work that has limits. He gives instructions as to how it is to be done. And so I want to ask you this morning, do you find yourself a participant in this work? If you've tried to join the work of God, but you're trying to do it independently, or you're trying to do it so that God would, would love you more, or so that you could get God's mercy, please stop. That's not how it works. Not only will you not be effective in what you're trying to do, but you also, you also are operating and having a relationship with God that's founded on wrong motives. You see, the response of incorporating the disciples into the work of the kingdom comes because they've already believed, they've already trusted, they've already received the grace that God has given. So ministry is not work taken up so that you can get into God's good books, so that you can get on the right side of the ledger. No, having become a citizen of heaven, having received what God has given you in Christ, then, then we become participants in that work. But the work must be undertaken with Jesus' instructions. So Jesus calls these disciples together. He bestows his power, his authority on them. He sends them out and he instructs them. Now we want to ask, what are the apostles supposed to be doing here? Jesus tells them, a little bit about how they're to conduct their ministry. Verses three, four, and five. He tells them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave town. 
If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. There's kind of three scopes to these instructions. The first has to do with what they're supposed to bring. The second has to do with where they're supposed to stay. And the third has to do with what they, how they're supposed to handle rejection. So first of all, what are they supposed to bring? Jesus tells them what not to bring. <laughs> and when you look at it, he excludes both extra provisions and really basic necessities. Take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt, no staff and no bag. Uh, the staff was something that would make the journey easier. Uh, and it was something that you would carry with you as you would walk along the, the countryside and, and it, around Galilee. It, it, was a, it was a means of comfort. And the bag was really a money purse, and so it was something that uh, you would carry with you if you wanted to, to, if you expected to receive more money. And the point here is Jesus is saying, as, you, as these disciples go about their ministry, they're not to be thinking about their own comfort, and they're not to be thinking about what they're going to be getting out of it. They're not supposed to be thinking about what they're going to be planning for the future. In other words, they're not carrying, they're not, they're not stockpiling things they collect along the way. Pretty remarkable. He then goes on to say, don't even take any bread or money. Now, bread is a means of sustenance. And money is a means of purchasing, a means of acquiring things. So when Jesus says, look, don't take the things that might make you comfortable, a, a, a staff that can help you travel and, and a money bag to sort of help, help you kind of plan for the future of this journey, but also don't, don't take any bread and don't take any money. You say, how is that supposed to work? How are they going to provide for themselves? And the answer is, the expectation is they won't. The expectation is that through the doing of their ministry that God will provide for them and specifically that through those who receive their ministry, they will be provided for. I really liked the way that one commentator, John Carroll, described this. Uh, excuse me, uh, Green. He says here that the apostles are instructed to take nothing, not even bread and money. That is, they're instructed to put their faith into action in the crucible of missionary activity. They're instructed to put their faith into action in the crucible of missionary activity. There is a letting go that takes place when you say, I'm going to be a participant in the kingdom work of God. There's a letting go of looking after your own interest, of looking after how you're going to provide for yourself. It's not that these things don't matter, as Jesus would, would instruct uh, famously in Matthew chapter 6. Your father knows you need these things. He knows you need to eat. He knows you need clothes. He knows, he knows you need to get to the next day. Apostles, as they travel spreading the kingdom, the kingdom message, as they travel sharing the freeing authority of Jesus Christ, it puts them in a position of dependence. It puts them in a position of trust. This means that if you and I are going to be participants in this kingdom work, if we're not just going to be watchers who sit on the sidelines and look around and say, oh, wasn't that interesting what God did in that case? 
But if we're actually going to be in the game, if we're going to be on the field, if we're going to be wearing his colors and we're going to be participating in his mission, this means that for us, we're going to be put in a position of dependence. We're going to be put in a position of need. And we're not going to have a clear picture. We're not going to have a clear sense of what's, how it's all going to work. And Jesus says that's intentional. It's intentional. It instructs us about the nature of the mission because you can't work for the kingdom of God while you're working for yourself. You can't be thinking about Jesus' purposes and God's reign and God's mission while you're thinking about how to take care of yourself. Now, some people can take this to an extreme and, 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 and can really sort of adopt a martyr complex, which is in, in, sort of, in a way, is a bit prideful. And so they, 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 they look haggardly, and they, they, they walk around, and they advertise their need to everybody, which is ironically also self-serving. So we need to avoid that as well. But the reality that serving the Lord would put you in a position of dependence is something that's unavoidable. What Carol says here is right. Missionary activity is a crucible. You have to exercise faith. It takes faith to be a missionary. It takes faith to be an itinerant evangelist. It takes faith to be a pastor, to be an elder, to be a deacon. It takes faith to be a Christian wherever you are. It takes faith to be a Christian in your classroom at school. It takes faith to be a Christian wife, to be a Christian husband. If you're going to align your purposes with the kingdom of God, it's going to put you in a position of dependence. And Jesus says that's intentional. So as the apostles are sent out and they're instructed not to bring these things, the picture is they're traveling light, as many commentators have said. They haven't loaded up everything. I'm famous for overpacking. I often get teased in my house because for however many days I'm gone, I'll probably bring at least two more shirts, probably another pair of pants, probably uh, all sorts of various and sundry things, uh, including extra books that I will never read. I haven't read them while I've been home, but suddenly I think if I'm going on a trip, I will have time to read not just one book, but three books. Famous for overpacking. As you look at your life and you step back, and if you say, my life is about a journey on the way of salvation, my life is a journey into the kingdom of God, are you traveling light? Or are you spending a lot of your time looking around trying to figure out how do I pack all this in? You see, if you've bought into the YOLO philosophy, you only live once, I'm gonna soak up everything and you see your life as a sponge, that you're trying to extract every single good nugget out of every experience because you are trying to insulate yourself with these things, then the kingdom of God's gonna get in the way of that because the mission and the work of God is unfolding before our very eyes. The train has already left and it's making stops every day, picking up people, asking them to come on board asking them to become participants. But you can't bring all your stuff with you. And here, even the basics 
the apostles are told they're not to bring. Spencer would write that the apostles and by extension us must depend on others' hospitality, not as freeloaders, but in exchange for their ministry. Uh, Not as a payment per se, but the idea is that if you are participating in the work of God and you are putting yourself in a position of dependence for the sake of serving God's purposes, that that work will be rewarded. That God will see it and honor it, but that other people will, will see your work and will meet your need. Jesus would famously tell Peter, who said, we've left everything to follow you, Lord. Jesus would tell him, he said, yes, you have. And anyone who leaves fathers and mothers and houses and and fields and all these things for the kingdom of God, will they not receive more fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and houses and fields and persecutions? And in the kingdom come eternal life. Jesus is saying, all that stuff you're trying to pack, you'll probably get more along the way. Don't bother missing out on this journey. He then tells them about where they are to stay, and this is a simple principle that sort of continues. Whenever, whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave the town. The, the idea is that they weren't to be like those other traveling speakers. You see, it was kind of a, a thing back in those days to, to be a circuitous teacher or preacher or philosopher and to go from, from place to place sharing your ideas and benefiting from the hospitality of others. But Jesus, he undercuts that and he says, look, don't turn this missionary effort into a, a leapfrogging to try to get yourself in the best place possible. When you, go to a, when you arrive at a city and you go to a house, stay there. Live there. Stay with them. And when you leave the city, leave the city. But don't become preoccupied by your surroundings, how to feather your nest. And then verse five, what do they deal with when when they meet rejection? Jesus says, shake off the dust from your sandals, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Here the idea is that the dust will be a witness to their rejection of the gospel and the kingdom work. And in this action, they are repudiating, they are showing, they are showing that this rejection is going to come back and testify against their decision. And so the dust becomes a testimony. They're not there to, to continue arguing. They're not there to, to berate or to, to, turn, to turn the whole venture into um, a trial of sorts. They're not to create these big showdowns, but they're simply to give testimony when they leave. It's interesting to read through the book of Acts and watch the apostles do take a similar approach. Paul and and Barnabas or Paul and Silas, they would often go to a synagogue. In the synagogue, they would persuade people about the kingdom of God. And in persuading them about that, they would inevitably meet with rejection. And they didn't stay there. They moved. They moved on. In one case, moving right next door to a lecture hall to continue the ministry. But this is what the apostles are to do. They're to bring the kingdom message and they're to show the kingdom power. Now, you've probably been wondering well, why aren't we seeing this today? I'm not seeing miraculous healings. I'm not seeing demons uh, expelled. 
And we sort of find two dangers in this text. One danger is to leave this in the past and to say, well, you know, that was the apostles and they had a special role and so the power and authority of Jesus is, is left upon them. The other danger is to say, well, there is nothing really special or significant about the apostles and so our ministry is going to look exactly like theirs. To both of these things, we say, well, yes and no. First, let's consider what was special about the apostles. We're told in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, and I'll pop the verse up there for you. In Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, uh, we're told that Jesus Christ has built his church on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and that Christ himself is the cornerstone. If you think about a foundation in a house, you need a ground floor. And the teachings of the prophets and the apostles fall into alignment with the person of Jesus Christ who is the cornerstone or the capstone, the one stone that defines how the whole foundation is to be set. And everything that happens in the history of churches is, is built upon the ministry of the apostles. This is why Christians from the very beginning have held to the Apostles' Creed. It's why many Christians still memorize it and recite it today. It's a statement of what the Apostles taught. And we're saying we believe in the witness that they provided. Particularly as Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, he told the Apostles that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them. And the apostles went on to do many miraculous things and mighty works. You can read about them in the book of Acts. And there was something unique about their ministry. But the power of the Spirit doesn't simply rest upon the apostles. Even in the book of Acts, when the Spirit comes at Pentecost, there was about 120 different disciples there, and they all received the Spirit. They were all participating in this powerful demonstration of Christ's authority for his people. Further on, we're told that we're indwelt by the Spirit of God, and that's the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And so if every believer possesses the Spirit of God, in a sense, the power of Christ resides within every single Christian. And yet, every single Christian, though they share this grace, that grace looks differently. You can read in Ephesians chapter 4 about how when Christ ascended to heaven, he gave gifts to men and women. And those gifts are people, apostles, evangelists, prophets, teachers, pastors. These people are given to equip and build up the church of Christ so that they can minister, so that they can serve Jesus wherever they are. So yes, the ministry of the apostles is unique, but the ministry of the apostles contained a power that also resides within you and I. So rather than trying to establish our own identity in the gifts, rather than trying to, to become something, let's be faithful with what we've, what we've received. Let's walk in that and trust God to supply the power that we need. If God has led you to a place where you've been able to do wondrous deeds through the power of the Spirit, 
manifestations of supernatural power that are beyond explanation. Praise God for that. Continue to walk in that. If God hasn't led you in that kind of ministry, that doesn't mean that there's not other ministries that God is enabling you to do through his power. But it also doesn't mean that he won't be able to do those other kinds of ministries through you. As citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we are called into kingdom work. And to do the king's work requires the king's power and authority, and he's graciously bestowed that upon us. So what's the effect of all this? We've seen what Jesus is doing here. We've seen what the apostles are doing here. The effect, verses six through nine. So they set out and went from village to village. The the apostles, they proclaimed the good news and healed people everywhere. You say, what was this message they were saying? The message was simple. The kingdom of God is here. And their acts of healing and the exercising of demons, just like in Jesus' ministry, demonstrated this jubilee, this liberty that comes when human beings are united with their creator, rightly under the rule of God. And so this message that the kingdom of God is here is spreading beyond not just one man, Jesus the Messiah, but it is spreading through his disciples, through these apostles. And everywhere the kingdom is going. Do you know the kingdom of God is still expanding today? The kingdom of Jesus Christ continues to push forward. It can be difficult to see sometimes. But I will suggest this to you if you're struggling to see the kingdom of God. First, destroy your idols. Because you can't see the work of God if you're bowing down to something else. Secondly, confess your sin. Because if your sin has not been dealt with, if your sin is, is still abiding, if you're still participating in that sin, if you haven't brought that into the light and confessed it to Christ, then you're gonna be blinded. You won't be able to see it. Thirdly, ask, ask to be filled with the Spirit. Ask to receive that ministry. We're told that every Christian is indwelt by the Spirit of God, but there's still a sense in which, in which the Spirit can overflow and be poured out. So ask for the Spirit's work. Fourthly, apply the Word of God to your life. You see, if we're looking and asking to see the kingdom of God, but we're ignoring so much of what God has already said and revealed, then we're working at Christ. When you do these things, suddenly you'll begin to see the power and the work of God manifest before your eyes. And the miraculous power of God, it's not just seen in in healings, though they do occur. It's not just seen in, in tongues, though I do believe that gift is still given. But it's seen in hearts. It's seen in lives changed. It's seen in marriages restored. It's seen in things like courage and perseverance. It's seen in words of exhortation. It's seen in wisdom and in in insight and ultimately in the fruit of the Spirit of God. Somebody shared recently that perhaps it's time that we began pursuing the fruits of the Spirit just as eagerly as we pursue the gifts of the Spirit. The fruits of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. These are things that only God can bring about. 
And so when we see them in our everyday life, you're seeing the kingdom of God. As the message is going, news reaches Herod. Verse seven, we're told, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. What's remarkable is this itinerant ministry begun with such little planning, with such little preparation, so that money and food are not even brought along, that this movement becomes so powerful and widespread that it reaches the corridors of power that Herod the Tetrarch himself, the one who would ultimately decide in a Roman, in a political sense, the fate of Jesus Christ. He hears about Jesus. And he's wondering who he is. Isn't this a beautiful picture? That the ministry of those sent by Christ leads people to wonder more about Christ. Herod isn't in his palace saying, wow, who is this Peter guy? I have to meet him. Or John, he must be somebody really special and incredible. Oh, man, I can't wait to learn something about Thaddeus because none of us knows anything about Thaddeus. <laughs> no, he's left wondering about Jesus. This is the result of effective ministry. Work and participation in the kingdom of God leaves people wondering about who Jesus is. And it highlights this conflict between the kingdoms. I really liked how Spencer brought this about. One commentator, uh, Spencer, he said that here in this part of Luke's gospel, he's highlighting the kingdom of this world next to the kingdom of God. And he says, here's the critical difference. In God's kingdom, out of little to nothing, amazing grace and generosity abound in Jesus to satisfy hungry masses. Whereas in Herod's realm, the burgeoning storehouses, this is because a lot of the fish that were caught would be brought into Herod's palace. A lot of the, the agriculture would, would go straight to him. In Herod's realm, the burgeoning storehouses served to satiate the already full and fat elites at the expense of the masses struggling to survive. Here you have Herod living in this rich and luxurious palace who's exercising power and authority for his own self-serving purposes. Meanwhile, Jesus and his apostles operating on virtually nothing by human standards are satisfying people, are freeing people, are releasing people, and exercising a power and authority that leaves Herod scratching his head saying, I have to meet this guy. But there's something else that this brings out. When Jesus faces Herod, in the end, ultimately, it points out this wrestle that's been building, that everyone needs to answer the question of who is Jesus? Who is he? Even Herod is wondering about this. And as Carol put, it's important for Luke and for us to see that genuine response to Jesus' teaching and acts of gracious deliverance, for this response to be genuine, people must wrestle with the question of who he is. 
The narrative answers that question for Luke's audience, but only by letting them observe how characters, even apostles, have a difficult struggle to align what Jesus says and does and what happens to him with the expectations they attach to the Messiah. We're watching people in this gospel struggle with this question, who is Jesus? And that's a question that's gonna dominate chapter nine, and it's going to be repeated again and again until finally we get an answer from the lips of Peter. But even when we get an answer from the lips of Peter in a few weeks, we're gonna see that even then his understanding is perhaps not quite accurate. And so we're to recognize that if we're gonna be participants in the missionary work of God and the bringing of his kingdom, if we're going to live as citizens of his realm, even as we occupy this earthly realm, that that ministry is going to bring people to a place of wondering about Jesus and who he is. And that's not the time to hide our light. It's not the time to go in and answer that question for them, but we're to let them wrestle with that question. Maybe even as you wrestle with that question. One of the remarkable things about this chapter is that among the 12 who were sent out with the power and authority of Jesus is someone, Judas, who doesn't really have faith. Alongside someone else like Peter, who, while he has faith, is an incomplete faith. And so there's this sense that Jesus is continuing his work even as people continue to struggle with his identity, struggle to understand who he is. And so I want to leave you with this question this morning. Are you wrestling with that idea of who Jesus is? If so, that's okay. This text shows us that we don't have to have it all figured out before we become participants in the work that God is doing. But to recognize that effective work and kingdom reality sees Jesus Christ as on the throne of heaven, as the Messiah, the Son of God, fully God, fully man, exercising divine authority to do what only God can do, which is to bring men and women across the barrier of sin and back into right relationship with God. And as you hear Jesus and respond to him, faith will bow the knee in recognition of his lordship. We're going to prepare to take the bread and the cup uh, in just a moment. Stephen's going to, to lead that time for us. But what we're left with in this text is a sense of awe and a sense of wonder. Wonder that this unparalleled authority would be bestowed on fallen men. And later on, that, extor that authority would extend, that power would extend even to us. As Paul would say to the church in Corinth, do you realize that you, the church, are the temple of the living God. Brothers and sisters of WDBC, do you realize that God dwells among us? That God dwells in us? And if God dwells in us, if we have been, as Peter says, equipped thoroughly for every good work, for everything we need for life and godliness, then what is stopping us? What's getting in the way? I encourage you to take some time this week to let that sense of awe and wonder just sit with you.
Ask, has Christ called me? Has Christ sent me? Am I following in his ministry? You see, it's a joy to step back. And I remember when we would, all, when we would finish every year, we'd finish putting those lights together and there was this moment where I would come out to the front and, and we'd have all the family and friends and we'd come out to the street and, and we'd step back and we'd say, okay, all right, hit the lights, Dad. <laughs> and we would stand back and we would look and we'd say, wow, look at this, this is amazing. And in that we weren't thinking, you know, I, I nailed that strand right there. Yep, that was me. We weren't thinking, you know, I, I checked that bulb right over there. No, we stood back and we just be, beheld the glory of, of, of the work that was done. In the kingdom of God, we're going to stand back and we're going to marvel, even as the angels are marveling now at the wisdom and the power of God. This same work that angels long to look into, he's calling you into. Will you follow him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're grateful for your grace and your care for us. We pray, God, that as we uh, prepare to take these elements, we pray that we would be reminded that we have a Father who loves us, who takes care of our needs. Lord, would you minister to us? Would you strengthen us for your purposes? May we be pleasing to you and may we live lives worthy of the gospel. Lord, help us to know what it is you've called us to here and now. Father, help us not to chase fantasies, but to chase your will. Help us to pursue the fruit of the Spirit, relying on the power of the Spirit to see your work accomplished. We will rejoice on that day as we stand back and behold the glory of what you've done. Lord, as the hymn says, we will cast our crowns around the glassy sea as we bow in reverence and awe of you. Thank you that you're a God who loves to bring us into his work. May we rejoice in that this week. Amen.